support from the people and the camaraderie. There's nothing like that. I wish it was like that now. It's different now. But we experienced it. Keep going. So on your quest to before, I of course, you're not thinking about this as an occupation. You're still doing what you're doing. You're yeah, to- right. I mean, at, at that time, too, you know, like the, the biggest goal, I think, in like the DJ framework was like, have your mix on one of those stations like WBMX, WGCI. Like, and you know, at the time it was Hot Mix 5 were big, Ralphie, um, Mike Hitman Wilson, Steve Hurley, Farley, um, that crew, Bad Boy Bill. Um, those were the main like radio DJs. And like, that was kind of the ultimate goal was like, it was like out of reach for us. Like, you know, but that's what you wanted. Like, I want to get my mix. If I could get my mix on one of those stations, you know, on Saturday night at 10 o'clock, like that was like the pinnacle, like, like that was what you, like the only thing, you know, you shot for in terms of like sort of ambitions that you could think of for DJ. And it wasn't like, even with, I mean, I think New York, too similar. There was just a lot of DJs. It was like a DJ breeding ground. Once people, you know, like I wasn't the only person figuring out what mixing was. There was a whole bunch of people in Chicago figuring out what DJing was. So, yeah, we had to be, you know, you had to be your own promoter. Like even, like I want to say the first little party, I remember Derek and I did this little party where we convinced this club to let us use their basement. And it was kind of where, um, what movie was that? Like. Uh, flatliners they were filming at the time like in chicago it was like like when we were doing this club night they were like with Kiefer sullivan and who was that like julia julia roberts when they're like flirting with death like that was being filmed down the street but we convinced this club to like let us use the basement which had its own entrance you know we had to bring the sound system bring the dj stuff we had to clean it because it was a dirty basement like of cement and so like Derek and I, you know, we're sweeping, we made the flyer just to do this little party at Ubon. And that's what you did. We, we were like loving it. You know, at Kinko's, you know, you're making the flyers, you know, bringing the gear. Like I even forgot like how they, they didn't even have a bar down there. Like, I don't know, it was just funny. Like the things we would do to throw a party. See, when you just said it, just brought me back. You just said the magic word, Kinko's. That means you had to design your own flyer and then you had to distribute the flyer. This was not thing in Chicago because there's and Ron Carroll said there was this thing called the Flyer War uh, Wars. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. The yeah, that was like that was good. And then you try and get like multiple like six on a page was good. Like you didn't want to do, you know, one on one sheet because that was cost more money. Like if you could break it down to do like you know the same flyer, you know, you'd copy it and do it like six or eight times on the page, then you could get 12 flyers from one sheet. And you'd sit there with their, they wouldn't cut it. Like it was extra for them to cut them. Like I just cut them myself on like, say at a paper cutter, you know, that was a good one there. I'm like, I'm just going to cut it myself. You know, it was like extra to cut. Yeah. And then you bring these flyers to all the, you know, the record stores, hand them out. So you, so were you, so were you, you and Derek out there yourselves flyering as well, or you had promoters working? No, just us. We were the promoters, me and, you know, Spencer and then, like there was a party, you know, these parties called, or there was just a thing at that era called loft parties in Chicago. They would be in different loft spaces. And, but yeah, but the DJ pretty much had to do everything. And even the one party, you know, like the, just, we'd, you'd just get a keg. You know, like there wasn't a bar. You'd get like, if you were like, if it was like big time, you'd get two kegs or something. Like 
like eventually you moved up to having like a bartender like that was later on like you have like just a keg and five bucks and you could you could serve the keg yourself at the party like <laughs> that was like that was it you know we'd bring the sound like the sound was this this guy named mike it was this, this dodgy sound that because we didn't have sound equipment like we didn't so we're just like we we're on a budget so you like you know we got we got mike to bring us the sound for 75 bucks <laughs> and he'd bring it in his van this guy and he had like a friend that would help carry him and like carry the speakers in but that was when he had to do all the work so so I guess the spring of the equipment tomorrow reminds me of these old parties. Yeah, right, exactly. I was going to say, it drags you right back full circle, right back to the start of of, the, of being your self-promotion, taking care of every part of the business. And, and people heard what you said, and clean the dirty basement to get it ready for the party. Yeah, we were sweeping. That's, and even you know, when we like, and even some loft parties too. Like, I mean, there were parties back then that this is that, you know, in that 80... You know, the 88-ish range, 89, like, you could do, like, people threw parties in places that weren't safe. (laughs) Like, you know, they wouldn't pass any health inspection, nothing like, but it didn't matter back then. Like, you just, you got the space and, well, the neighbors complain, like, no, I don't think so. You know, and that was, that was the clearance you needed, like, so, yeah, like, I remember going, like, Mystic Bill used to do some parties that were, like, you're in, like, a war zone, like, there's like boarded up stairways that are like half broken and you just move a piece of wood like let's go check out what's up here and like meanwhile like you know the sound system's off the where like in the warehouse space on that side and you could just wander around some building that had no like safety precautions it was basically a construction zone and we're like you know you're raving walking around in these little spaces and that's so. the same thing that happened here in new york and there was a one thing that changed all that moving forward when this one atrocity happened that was horrible it was a place called the Happy Land Disco in the Bronx. And this woman went there. It was an illegal party in a place that had one entrance and one exit. And the guy was so jealous that his girl went. He decided to chain up, like in the movies, chain up the door. And he lit, he torched the place on fire and everybody died. And that was the moment in New York that all those laws changed and i remember when you was talking about that that would never happen again it would allow us to parties like that in places like that so yeah things changed quickly once like the cops sort of figured it out you know there was even a point later when we were doing party after you know we'd been doing parties a year or two like you'd have to get like an off-duty cop to work the door you know you'd pay like an off-duty cop 100 bucks that worked in that precinct who could like the cop car would drive by and he'd like you know wave them off like it's cool like and you pay this cop to just you know he was off duty though but yeah you need security yeah security basically so and then i remember at one point you know in that same era then some clubs like well i would work so yeah like i mean i'm going back to my other when i started doing club gigs like i want to say like the first club gig i got that was like a big deal was a place called shelter in chicago which was um I want to say it opened in around 89-ish there. It was, and it had a Richard Long system, which was awesome. It was, you know, this big new club and you, everybody, you know, you submit your mixtape. And so I got a job there where I would do Thursdays in this main room. And that was like my first sort of main room break, you know, kind of like, like I had that other club that was off in Arizona, but it was, it was a different feel. So this was like a house thing and, you know, it was like a, so it was a big deal to play this main room, but in that era when we would have door like 
when we'd be doing loft parties too, the clubs would get the flyer and they would like fax them to the police. Like, like some clubs, you couldn't hand out the flyers to the party in because they would, they didn't want, you know, your little club night down the street taken away from their business. You know, some owners weren't having that. They would, they, they had their police friends and you know, would like rat on you about your party. But, you know, yeah, I was to say like, as those era was going on, like, laws came into effect that you know and everything changed like you know you need to have permits permits didn't have, you know, there was a few years when the term permit didn't exist so but that was a good it was a good time luckily you know knock on wood there's no like major incidents in chicago like the happy land thing so and thank god but that changed i think that was nationwide news at that time that this crazy guy did this and that many people died it was crazy it changed the laws for a lot of states Especially when things like that happen in New York, you know the rest of the country takes notice for things like that. Um, so basically your real club for you is Shelter then, the one yeah. that really puts you on the map, right? Yeah, that was where I kind of started to get some, yeah, just like some street cred and like it was just a great night on Thursday. It turned into a really good night for a couple of years. And What was the demographics of the people that came to Shelter in Chicago? The mixture, yeah, like, it was a bit of everybody. Like, oh, you had a pretty a, much smorgasbord of everybody from different neighborhoods, right? Yeah, it was just yeah, it was like right downtown, like, and it was like a new club, so it didn't have like um, any sort of history to go on. You know, there was I, I was also I mean my first club gig was at Smart Bar, which was north of oh. where this was. You know, Smart Bar was still going on back then, and you know I did a Tuesday there before getting that shelter gig but you know so smart bar you know it's still, that's why it's still so awesome to go back there every time because that was my first club night but it was like you know another, it was that same era though where i promoted myself i was making my own flyers at kinko's for tuesdays and you know, i'm trying to think how long it lasted but it didn't take off like it, you know like you know not all nights you know you try and do a night not all nights blow up like you do nights and sometimes you know, you play the whole night for a couple months and you know like the club wants to move on you know clubs want to try something different but this place shelter though and i didn't have to promote they had their own promotion team like they would make the like a nice full color glossy flyers which i still have a, a lot of them you know at shelter and yeah it was just a you know great mix of people and you know they were open till four on you know four on friday you know four on a weeknight and five on saturday so then i would play that main room thursday and then they eventually opened like a room downstairs like underneath the club underneath where i was playing called the boiler room which is so then i would play there on friday and then they opened like another room called the what was it called or oh, the paramount room so there was like a good couple of years i would just play thursday friday saturday you know in different rooms at the same club like it was thursday in the main room friday down underneath this boiler room and then saturday in the paramount room it was called which is where i kind of mentioned it was like just couches and head nod music like People didn't really go in there to dance. It was like a B room. And that was kind of where I I was also going to New York and that I started going to New York around 89-ish. You know, like I would go with Spencer or Derek. We'd just go to record shop. And that's where I sort of learned, because it seemed like New York at that time, it was normal to have like, there'd be the house room and then there'd be a hip hop room and then like a reggae room. Yep. In Chicago, you'd go like every room would be house, which I thought was redundant. You're like. You go like you could go from one room, like when a club did have two rooms, like they'd be playing the same song in the little room as the big room. You know, like 
I mean, I would do that too when I played the room downstairs, you know, just sometimes you'd be playing the same music, but I did learn going to New York. I liked that you go to a different room and they're actually playing different music. Like they're sure. not trying to play the same music as the, I don't know, it just makes sense. So that's where I started playing different stuff than house. Like that's where kind of that started was playing in that like head nod couch room. And like I said, like we mentioned, like each playing those three nights all night, you know, nine to four, nine to four, nine to five, three nights a week. I think you really, like you can, and you can practice all like, you know, all you want at home. It doesn't um, prepare you for DJing out. Like, you know, you have to DJ out to get that, you know, that, you know, just that marathon, that, that marathon type of night, you know, you're yeah. going, you're going full. Remember everybody, he ain't taking no lunch break. You know, he's playing nine o'clock till five in the morning. And I had to bring like, I mean, I bring like five, five crates, you know, five or seven, bring like five or six crates, like milk crates. This was still the milk crate thing. And we would like, you'd cut the garden hose, like you'd buy a garden hose and chop it up in little pieces to put on the handle because the handles were kind of sharp of those, we had those like white milk crates and like, you know, the, when they're full, like, so we like, I forgot how we discovered it, but yeah, you put like garden hose with duct tape. And then you got these handles. You want to play that club in shelter. And then there was another club in Chicago called Red Dog. Oh, yeah. Which was a good one. Like Spencer would play a lot. But you had to, literally the booth was like up a ladder. So you had to raise these crates like up a freaking ladder. And like the Red Dog ladder was a lot bigger than the ladder shelter. But there was a two-person thing. So you'd have to like, you know, one person would go up the ladder. And then you'd have to raise these crates up to the booth. You know, like now you just stroll in with your USB and headphones. So this was like creating a bunch, you know, to do those long sets, you needed all those records, but it was good practice. So you predominantly house. And of course, as you get into the other rooms, the mushroom jazz thing is beginning for you as because you call it the paramount room, right? Or yeah. The, and that was like, you know, I think it comes mm-hmm. pre bottle. This is not bottle service yet. No, no. No bottle service, although they had like tables and stuff, but it was, yeah. And like, you know, like I think I mentioned earlier too, like the sounds, like the main room had that Richard Long system. It was a proper club system, but the B rooms didn't have that, you know, it was like speaker, like the one room was like really tall ceilings and the speakers were kind of up in these rafters Then they had some subs, but it was like couches and yeah, there was no bottle service, but so you're playing. And that's where I think that connected with going to New York was, well, why should I try and beat the same records that they're playing in the main room in here? And like, I would rather hear this record in the main room than in this room. No offense. Yeah. It's still good. So that's why I started playing. And then, you know, those that not like, you know, that early hip hop stuff coming out that I got into. And then a lot of the, and that's right when that UK acid jazz sound was starting and then sort, and then I was learning what classic funk stuff. Like I didn't really learn that until that late, like 89 range like i didn't grow up listening to funk and soul like my parents didn't have like i didn't have that access to say like some other people did you know growing up when your parents you know were into disco funk that was sort of a later learned thing so yeah i'd play the you know just different room music like i wouldn't even get over you know you play some disco funk and keep it like 115 beats per minute and below like not even venture to house but nobody was dancing you know you didn't have to worry about the dance floor but that's where the whole mushroom jazz sound kind of built up which actually yeah. took off for you. It really did take off for you. you got yeah, it turned out to be a whole, 
you know, it turned out to be a great thing. You know, that coincided with going to San Francisco. And like I mentioned, I don't think, I mean, people in Chicago at that time, you know, would only dance to house music. Like it had like, you know, we were talking about BPMs, like people wouldn't dance to anything below 125. Like it was just, that was the party soundtrack was 125 beats per minute ish and up. And, you know, you're not going to get away with playing something slow on a dance floor in Chicago. But I was playing rooms that didn't have a dance floor, so it didn't matter. So I could play these little chill out vibes. And but San Francisco, though, they were open to dancing at slower tempos, which was non-existent in Chicago. Because even I think in New York, you guys had the whole hip hop thing. Like I said, Chicago didn't have a hip hop scene until way later. Like it was just all house. But that meant clubs were all this upper tempo music. Yeah, but like the mushroom jazz thing wasn't a, a, a formidable thing here in New York. It just didn't take off like that. That was more West Coast at that time um, than New York. Because reggae was really making a big impact. Because I remember playing a wild pitch in New York and Bobby Connors was playing reggae sets in the middle. And the people would go crazy. And then we put, put disco and classics. Uh, sorry, uh, classics and house music back. And the crowd loved it. They loved it. So where the differences were, the people here were more into the Jamaican stuff, where opposed to the West Coast was more into the abstract jazzy stuff that you were doing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like a, which I was was pleasant surprise. You know, like that was that around, you know, ninety two ish range when I started going to San Francisco a bit, and yeah, learning that they they were open to dancing the slower beats per minute, which was cool. And like, but Chicago, you couldn't get away with that. <laughs> you couldn't get, like, you could play like a slow record at the end, you know, at the end of your set at five in the morning, you'd slow it down, like kind of lead people out, you know, like, but you wouldn't at midnight be playing some like 95 beats per minute. Hell no. So yeah, it was different, a different thing. So now that you're actually, you know, your feet are pretty, pretty stable into this club scene, when do you venture out to start thinking about production or does somebody introduce this to you accidentally or something because you definitely mentioned trombone player so you had musical skills you had the notation in your mind and that stuff because you were you were learning that to sight read but now we're talking about synthesizers and drum machines in that world so take us there yeah so that was still that in high school i started being in cover bands, like I was a, a drummer. Like I got a drummer and I mean, I got a drum set in freshman year of high school. Like I somehow convinced my parents to get me a drum set. I don't know how, but so I started playing drums and then we formed like a little band where we would do like cover songs of in excess and I don't know, like stuff like that, like new wave-ish, I don't know, like, yeah, new wave-ish cover band. And then in high school, like, I want to say it was, I was still in high school. I want to say like 86, before 87, I want to say my junior year, I got a Yamaha RX-15 drum machine, which I can't remember how I learned, you know, what that was. But so I got this drum machine and I was like, I guess I was playing drums in a band and then we were the first band in our high school where like we had this idea because well, I wasn't that, I wasn't the best drummer. I was, I was a decent drummer, but there were drummers, like the drummers that were, um, 
the drummers in like band. Like I wanted to be a drummer, but you know, my parents said, you know, like they're like drums is an instrument, you know, and you choose your instrument. So I ended up in trumpet. My parents wouldn't let me choose drums, but like the drummers that were in, you know, like the marching band drum corps were really good and they would play in you know rock bands and they were, you know, like I couldn't compete with them really like, cause their skill, you know, they've been drumming for years. And so we were like, we had the brilliant idea. We're like, let's get rid of the drum set and we're going to be the first band that doesn't have a drummer, you know, and people were like, Whoa, what's it like? Like, you know, it was just a little battle of bands at like this church in our town. Like where it'd be like, you know, us and three other local bands in our, in Park Ridge high school bands that, you know, you'd have like a battle of bands and people would cheer and vote a winner. So I started having a, you know, just a drum machine. And then I had this synthesizer that, that like my other friends were in a band. Like it was like, it was a Korg micro preset. It was called like this, like little Korg mono synth, but we didn't have any way to sync them. Like that came later, but so we had a drum machine and then we would like play the little bass line by hand and started to do some more like industrial cover songs. And then fast forward to meeting Derek, like Derek was already starting to make records when I met him in late 88. So he had like a couple of releases under his belt and that's where we learned to sort of get our first studio experience with like, you know, proper recording setup and units that were synced up sequencers and things because before that we didn't know i didn't know but like yeah i'd borrow like I'd, i had a friend that would go to these new wave clubs that i borrowed a sequencer from for like an audition to get in like this talent show with our band and we sequenced this bass line and we were thought we were like hot shit we had this you know it's just a drum machine but with one sequence bass line that like we somehow learned to sequence on the sequencer we borrowed and like we're like yeah this is cool but then we couldn't get like the sequencer back for the performance we we're like oh no like we didn't think about like you know we like auditioned on this song that like, we love that song and then like you know it came to doing the song and we like the sequence was some you know like little nits or heavy bass line like that you really couldn't play like an arpeggiated bass line and we couldn't do it in the performance we were all stressed out like because you couldn't just play it and we're like we can't get this sequencer what do we do so it was pretty funny anyway i, I distracted from the Things no, 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 it's great. No, this is real. So you, <laughs> I'm laughing because I could visualize this. The pre-programmed set that was in that drum machine is no longer available for this night. Yeah. You guys must have been freaking <laughs> out. This yeah. is not what we, what we rehearsed back at the house. This is crap. Get rid of this. Do something. Yeah. Figure it out. <laughs> We had to like retool. Yeah, we couldn't do this because it wasn't the same. Like you couldn't play the notes that fast because it was sequenced. And like I couldn't. I'm not a piano player. I can do it. And it was just pointless. So yeah. So that later, how, you know, like, you, how do you get around that? <laughs> I'm not only gonna laugh because I'm. Vis I can visualize. We all went through crazy stuff back then. <laughs> how do you get around a problem like this? You, your boys. What do you guys do to make up for the problem? What are you thinking? Um, well, we had to change the whole. I mean, I don't even think we could do the same track. Like we had to. I had to like scale it down to a baseline I could actually play, which was about all but four notes. Like, you know, I can only do like a four note. Yeah, like my friend who was uh, Chris Nazuka, who ended up making the track with Derek and I, like, you know, he, we were we ended up becoming symbols and instruments that are recorded with Derek on KMS. 
but he was a keyboard player. So he had to play a part, but he was just the vocalist. He wasn't a keyboard player. So he had to play a part. And then I had this other girl playing synthesizer, a girl named Chrissy that I'm still friends with. So she was, so we sort of had to, like, I had the drum machine luckily, but like we had to change the whole, like the whole theme of the song was the sequence bass thing. That was basically the whole song. Like it was just a four bar loop of like, you know, like a, a two measure thing of like, like something real simple like that. But that was basically the whole song with some little strings over it and the drums. So yeah, we, uh, yeah, we had to do like a scale down rendition, but obviously it didn't sound like really, you know, it sounded so good when we rehearsed it. And then like, and then we're stressing out because we couldn't do that live, but we had to, because the show must go on. You know, like you're in the show. So wait a minute, Mark, don't ever, don't ever shut that, that drum machine off again. You hear me? Because <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't record it. You didn't have no way of recording anything back then because it means you have to have a tape machine. It means you yeah. have to have all extra gear and that costs money, you know? No, exactly. Yeah, to get a real studio back then was like, you know, I, I would have freaked out today if I could have made tracks on my phone back then. Oh, my God. Could you visualize that? My mind would have, like, been blown, yeah, because they used to a real studio that had, like, you know, a real, like, a record, like an eight, you know, recorder. Like, it was a real studio. Like, they had to rent from somebody. Like, Derek, I want to say, the first studio we saw was, there was a guy, Mark Imperial. You ever remember that name? Or, like, he had, like, a couple of house records in Chicago that were, what was his famous record? Mark Imperial. It'll come to me. But anyway, so it was Mark Imperial Studio. And like, you know, Derek had, he had Matt Warren's drum machine. I want to say it like it was Matt Warren, who another house guy who would bang the box. Do you remember that song? Bang the box. Bang the box. <laughs> but like Derek had that exact, eight, it was that 808. So we were like, you know, kind of excited about it. Like, That's the 808 from, you know, from Matt Warren. So yeah, and Derek actually knew how to engineer. Like, yeah, he was, so we would rent out the studio space and, you know, Derek actually knew how to make the things talk to each other, which we had no idea. You know, like, like that was how we learned, you know, is that, you know, in that range of Derek, like how do the machine, you know, what is MIDI? How does, how does that work? Like there wasn't, um, you know, there's no computer or anything. It was just different units making different sounds. You know, and like you said, if you had to like re go and do that studio time again, like you couldn't get the same exact sound as say like a couple of weeks ago, like when you hook all the machines back up, you know, it's like, it always sounds a little different. Like when you have to, you know, retouch something. So it would, yeah. So that's where we started. So, AMS, so Kevin Saunderson is A&R in your records, I'm presuming, right? Yeah. Derek had a record out on, like I want to, I think it was this time for techno compilation. There was like a, a magic wand track on there. It was like fluorescent green and orange on KMS. And Derek at that time, you know, he'd started like, you know, talking with Detroit people. And that's where we ended up like, he pitched it to them, like the tracks we had started working on to Kevin. And then, you know, who else was, I mean, and Shay, Shay Damier was working at KMS at the time. Um, so that's our introduction to that. So we like, they brought us up, like, you know, and through Derek, Derek's connects, like Chris Nazuka and myself, you know, we drove to Detroit and, you know, recorded the songs at KMS. And this was in, you know, like 89 range. So, we, you know, it was just, you know, cool. You know, and that's when KMS was, it was like KMS here. Next door was Metroplex, which was Juan's studio. And above that was Transmat, Derek May's studio along that corner of Rashard. So that was a whole nother mind opening, you know, 
experience to go up there. And you know, that's why I always felt too, like, you know, Chicago and Detroit always had like a close, um, closer connection, even more so I think than New York, Chicago had in the house stuff, like cause Chicago, Detroit had that techno crossover, like the Detroit guys were going to Chicago and, you know, those records were big in Chicago and the tempo was a lot similar. So, and I think that early Detroit stuff bridged me, you know, from coming from an industrialish side of things into house because of, you know, it was just a bit like the acid track Detroit sound was darker house stuff. And I liked all that, you know, just all that early transmat stuff, like all that Detroit stuff coming out at that time was, was pretty impressive. Oh yeah. It was pre-techno as we call yeah. it techno, you know, it all, it all went under the same word house music. Detroit house, Chicago house, and then of course we had New York house music too. But it's cool how you hear these different avenues of things that were going on all at the same time, but yet they're not far away from each other in the stories that would happen in different cities. Things were were coming together because everybody was finding this new thing. They didn't even know it was called house music. Normal people did not know. Say normal people, people who didn't didn't were not music industry people that just followed dance music. They just just said, "Oh, that's electronic music." They wouldn't know to call it a particular genre, you know. But so you're tinkering around with MIDI. What's the first record everybody goes? Oh. Shit, Mark Farina, this is the bomb for you. Um, well, I think it was that record we had on KMS that Derek and Chris and I did. It was under that group named Symbols and Instruments that we did that was called um, Mood. It was the 12-inch. And it was sort of, it was like the same era when Pacific, 808 State Pacific State came out. So it was kind of this like ambient house sort of, concept that like was just sort of becoming a thing there was a couple of detroit records that maybe had that style there was this like you know ethereal kind of ambient house sound that was so yeah and that record got us like some you know pub and like that's where we started to get some notice in england like we made some charts over there you know and some record stores bought it you know and that's how derek and i ended up in san francisco was through that record because um these guys that were doing parties in San Francisco, the Hard Kiss brothers, were playing the real ambient mix of the track. Like it was just had no drums. Like we did like, you know, we did like a club mix that had, you know, it was like more Detroit techno ambient, but then there was a version that had no kick or anything in it. And they would play that at like sunrise. And you know, that's how Derek and I got our first like West Coast booking was through that record. Because even at that time, you know, it still wasn't like New York, it, like you just played in Chicago. Like you weren't really thinking about pl like playing another city wasn't a thing. Like my mom was like, you know, like I played, like we had a, first, we had a gig somewhere in LA before San Francisco. And she's like, they don't have DJs in LA. Why do they got to bring you there? And like, that's how it was, you know, like it's like traveling wasn't like you were just trying to DJ in, in the town. It wasn't. So you, can you bring us back to that time? Like, did they, call a manager did you guys have a manager i mean how did this happen you remember i think because derek you know well, we were working at gramophone in chicago at that time uh which was a record store in you know in chicago that was on the north side that was a lot of us worked at like it was derek um sneak ralphie um dj heather 
Miles made a, a long line of, you know, Oscar was the other, Oscar McMillan was the other house guy. So it was like a hub of all us DJs. And I think somebody had called there. Like, yeah, you know, you didn't have emails back then, cell phones, or like somebody had contacted Derek, I think. I don't even know how we got contacted for our first gig. I think it was through the store. Or it was, you know, you'd put your phone number on a mixtape, like your home phone. Like this wasn't even, you know, you didn't have a cell phone. It was like, you know, you'd have to check an answering machine. You know, you just get a, you know, like the playing the cassette on the answering machine, like, oh, you rewind it and like get the message. So yeah, that was, you know, that was how we got, you know, our first couple of gigs. Like I want to say it was Shelter too, like Doc Martin played there and Kiyoki and the old New York guy, like they came and played at Shelter that Callback was playing. And that was like our first, like, you know, like witnessing a guest DJ come to Chicago, you know, like, wait, you guys go and play somewhere else? Like, it was just such a foreign concept. So wait, you fly somewhere and you DJ in another city? Really? And wait, you play a shorter set? Wait, you only play two hours? And they, <laughs> they flew you out here to DJ. To do it, but why? <laughs> why like, don't they ask the question? Why? Why yeah. did you have here? <laughs> so it was like, you know, like a new... Why? This was pre-rave, you know, like before raves existed. You know, I think that was... Like once our rave started picking up, that was where like, you know, we'd go to like Iowa to play or like that came a little, a little bit after, but like where you would drive somewhere and play another town was all in that around 1990-ish range when there was like other cities starting to do parties and like, and that's kind of, I guess, the dawn of the traveling DJ and like, you know, DJs would be like, yeah, we'd just go somewhere to, and we didn't even have, you know, we like you didn't even have flight case, like flight cases or anything. Like we remember, we put like our those milk crates I was talking about. We put it in a box, and then we would put our clothes around the milk crate, even though that the milk crate wasn't going to break anything. But we just like we got to protect. So it was like a Cuba Records with clothes around it in a box, and you would check that. Like you know, and that was how that's that was how we got to like the first couple gigs pre-flight case people. Pre everything, mm-hmm. pre management, pre contracts for the moving DJ that played from city to city. This is like early in the game, everybody. Early. And you'd like, you know, you'd fly somewhere and you'd get picked up by the roommate of the person doing the party. This was like the dawn of, you know, like I said, we were doing our own parties in Chicago. So then there was around 1990, you know, we decided, you know, obviously it's, when you don't have to worry about promoting and bringing all the gear, it like frees your brain up to just worry about DJing. Cause sometimes when you're doing like everything at the party, like you get, it's time to DJ and you're like beat. Cause you've been like running around all day. You've been carrying speakers up flights of stairs and like doing all this stuff, you know, like sweeping a, like the a warehouse out, like, you know, and then all right, the doors got open. You're know, like, you're running around all day to throw this party. It was a lot of work to actually have the concept that you could just, DJ was like a sort of like a mind blowing, like it sounded like you know, sound like wow, you can just worry about DJ. Wow, yeah, you can, I don't have to think about anything else of getting there and doing my thing and leave it when the set's over, not wait at the end of the night and wait around for your envelope. Oh, yeah, well, talk to the owner. But you had to go through that state, that was a stage though that was unfortunate, yeah, like walking around the party, like 
And it was always harder, like at least at a club, if you're playing a club, you knew where the office was. But sometimes when parties started to move out of the club into like a, a warehouse space or, you know, different spaces, like you didn't know where that promoter was going to be like, you know, walking around like, you know, at six in the morning, like trying to find, like, and they knew where, like, that always, you know, that was like a stickler of mine too. Like when I ended up doing parties, you just pay the DJ right when you can't, like even right when, before they play, give them the envelope because you know where the DJ is going to be. That always pissed me off. It was like, you knew where I was for three hours. You couldn't bring me an envelope. Like, why do I have to walk around after the party for like two hours trying to find your ass? Yeah. It was for a while. It was normal. Like, you just have to, some promoters, you have to go look for them to get paid. Oh, (laughs) the stress of dealing with all that. And, you know, there was no cell phones. Like, we meant, like, you couldn't call the promoter. You had to, like, walk around. Hey, did you see, you know, Jim? Oh, I think he was, you know, over there or by the, I think he was by the front door. He might've went in the other room. Like, you know, and then you're going to leave a city without money. You know, like, was it never a good thing? Like, you know, you wouldn't just want to fly out of somewhere and not get paid because who knows how you get, like, they didn't, I think it was only like Western Union back then. Or like, I didn't even have a bank account. Like, I remember the first time I got a check, like, I was like, what do I do with this? Like, I didn't even know what to do with the check. I'm like, check, I don't have a bank account. Like, anyway. <laughs> Like, I remember in San Francisco, like, I had to go cash, like, the check at the, and, well, and there was, like, check cashing. It was at, at the bank that the person drew the check from. Like, you know, the person who wrote me the check, I had to go to their bank with the check to cash it because, I don't know, I wasn't official. I didn't have all this stuff. Anyway. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, bro. He wasn't, he wasn't thinking on that level, like, business. You were just doing it from strength to strength, gig to gig. Yep. I mean, I want to say, you know, maybe you would, like when things started getting in the swing of the early 90s, like you'd book a little ahead, but, you know, it definitely wasn't like, like, you know, now things book really far ahead. It wasn't like, uh, you sort of live in a couple months, you know, and rent was a lot lower back then. So like there wasn't so much overhead, but you weren't like, yeah, it wasn't, you know, we touched on this earlier. You weren't thinking like, I'm going to D- I'm going to be a DJ for 10 years. Like you were worried about getting through that year. Let me ask, yeah, let's ask that question. At the time of being, say, 18 to 25 at that time, did you think that fast forward now, middle-aged era, that you still be doing this or even making income from it? Traveling? Um, we never thought that far ahead, or I didn't think about what I would be doing when I was 50. You know, like I started DJing, you know, in. 21 and up clubs when I was like 17, 18. Like, and somehow the clubs didn't care that I was underage to even play at them. But yeah, you weren't thinking like, I mean, I want to say the oldest DJ I'd known at the time was like Joe Smooth was a little older than like, I'd say I'd call like, it's, it's been called like Derek Spencer, myself. Um, some of these people, we kind of call ourselves the second generation of Chicago DJs. Whereas the first generation would be like Frankie, Ron, um, that era like gary wallace and like the hot mix five guys those guys were the first generation and we're kind of the second generation mm-hmm. you didn't like you didn't like i'm trying to think of well, like you know even at that time like i was 17 18 or you know say 20 you know and frankie was you know his 30s like you didn't know any old djs really like, at least in chicago like the oldest dj was their 30s when i started you know if that mm. like, so you weren't thinking like I don't know. Just you weren't. I wasn't thinking till this year. Obviously, not like thinking that I'd be DJing like even in like 2000 or something. Like I wasn't 
I guess when, maybe when you're younger that you're not thinking. Well, first of all, when yeah. we started playing out, we were thinking, man, 1999, 2000 is far. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it was the future. Like you, like some songs would mention, you know, 2000 or something. You'd be like, the 2000 was the future. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's a whole different era. It's like, we're not there yet. We weren't thinking that. We were like living year to year, day to day. So different. We didn't project that way back then. We didn't project so far ahead. We were projecting getting through one. Oh, I'm going to try to get that club or I'm going to try to get that gig. It was one to one every time. Then you got that. You put that behind you. Then you're trying to get something else. It wasn't a matter of I want to be working out in a gym and, you know, buffing out. So I look like the DJ to play the people. So, you know what I'm saying? So we, we, weren't th- we were thinking about getting hot music, at least me getting hot music to play to these people because I want to be the first to break it. Yeah. Right? This needs to be played out. Like, Yo, Mark, can you, you hear this? Yeah, I want it. When guys would say, I want it, you knew they were going to work your record. Not, you know, now, today, oh, social media, um, self-brands, everybody's promoting their stuff. And the art of what we remember of breaking new music from other DJs, producers, becoming less and less. It's more about them playing their own brands when they go out. You know, and the music's more like a business card than it is the driving force to what we do, you know? Yeah, it was, I mean, it, I mean, you wanted recognition for like from your peers for being a good DJ. You were trying to compete friendly with other DJs, but we didn't want the like spotlights on us and all this stuff. You were you know, you wanted to, you know, heads would know that's the DJs up over there or whatever. And like in that time, the DJs, you know, were not positioned in like a rock band format. Like the DJ wasn't a performer for many years. It was just the DJ off to the side doing his thing. Like, you know, you weren't. Nobody, right. Nobody realized really, you know, unless you were a, a dancer that was following the DJs, they really didn't really get it. They didn't follow it like today. You know, the DJ is the is the draw. He's the he is the god. God is a DJ sense. Back then it was more the music was, oh, I like that spot because the music's hot. That's how people spoke. I remember. Man, they played some hot stuff. They didn't even know, like a lot of people went to Paris Crush, didn't even know it was Larry LeVan. They just loved going there because it was the garage. Then Larry became famous in New York. And of course, you know, and some people will probably yell at me for this, but that's how I remember it. Nobody said, oh, it's because of Larry Levan. It would just say, yo, man, the garage, the garage or the warehouse. They wouldn't say Frankie Knuckles. We didn't know it back then like that. They just say, yo, the music's hot at this spot. You got to check this out. You know, yeah. that's your train spot in DJs. You know, most people didn't talk that way. You know? Yeah. I mean, that wasn't until uh, yeah, the train spotting thing came a little later. Like I found more like as things moved to raves when there was kind of the era where like the DJ boots started to be put on the floor, but it wouldn't have a lot of lights on it. It would still be just as dark as the dance floor, but you would be right next to the dance floor. But there was like a period before that where the booth was always up somewhere, like off the side, like a little room, like 
and it was definitely not on a stage or anything. But then I, I found raves though. Then there was like a, a period though, when you started to put the boots like right at the edge of the dance floor. So like the dancers are kind of right there, which, you know, it's a, if it wasn't set up right, it could be a pain in the ass because you know records are skipping and you have people like your friends, like being like the booth security, like, Hey, don't touch that table. Like, like you used to have like, get away from it. Yeah. Sometimes the floor was cement and things were all good, but sometimes, you know, when you're in a wood floor with wood stuff, like and record and yeah, turntables were always an impure medium for certain party atmospheres. But yeah, that was the part where, you know, people would start to, you know, like look and see what the records were that like, kids that you know were just starting to come out and like i even had some friends i don't know if it was ever a new york thing some friends they would put like felt circles over the record so they couldn't you couldn't see what the record was because you know that was your secret ingredient or something like don't look at my records like or you'd mark them up with markers so like you couldn't tell what it was like you know like backlash <laughs> against train spotting <laughs> i knew somebody that used to carry white the white center parts to put on every record. <laughs> so you, people be like going like this. <laughs> and it'd be like, and the guy would go, yeah. and he had the white on every, no matter if the record was out, it was a test pressing. He didn't want nobody to know who what, what it was. It's funny as hell. I mean, even though things were, I mean, that was just another great thing at that era. Like some stuff, you know, if it was, it was a brand new record, like, you'd know only a few people have this promo in the city, you know, and it's only going to be heard at, you know, a couple, only a couple club DJs have this particular record because you just know you're at the record store and like, you know, Derek was the order or, or, you know, something was hot on promo. It was limited on promo. You know, it wasn't like the digital world where, you know, something's out everywhere it's like there's only 10 copies of this record in the whole city that's it <laughs> end of story like at least for a week or two you know like that doesn't always go like if it's a hot record you know but it, it used to take time you know when there's a promo you'd have a little bit of time between getting like a strictly rhythm promo or emotive or new groove like you have a couple week window before the record actually came out like to have that exclusivity of, of the record which is still a lost art Oh, I know. So, Mr. Farina, when would you say the Farina train really came crazy for you? Like, when did shit get nuts, you know? Um, yeah, I would say, like, so the Chicago Shelter gig was a good thing. And then when we started traveling, when like, started playing in San Francisco, I'd say that 90s era, starting in 92, when we started traveling from Chicago. And that's when I started playing in, in San Francisco. Um. I could just remember a couple, like a period of, you know, that 92 to even like 99 range where just like parties kept getting crazier and crazy. Like, like it can't possibly outdo the other one. And, you know, like it would just be crazy night, like just so many crazy, you know, fortunate to play many crazy nights. And then like being in San Francisco in that nineties period, like it was just a different vibe than Chicago. Chicago was and Chicago still had craziness, but there's a different craziness going on in San Francisco that extended past that Chicago period starting in 92, where like, you know, there was just things going on every night of the week where there was like a lot of crazy club nights going on. And then I play in LA and you know, like when I was based, so I'd say I would go back and forth from Chicago to San Francisco I'd be in San Francisco a couple of weeks and then I could play like a Portland and Seattle and some different 
regions that maybe couldn't afford to fly me from Chicago, but I would sort of base myself in San Francisco. So yeah, that nineties and you know, like that kind of, you know, that early rave area, you know, there was a lot of crazy rave parties. You know, New York had some crazy, crazy rave thing. Like, you know, there's always some, you know, different cities had good rave scenes. There were some crazy just parties that weren't in a club. So yeah, that nineties period, I think was just really kind of out of, out of control. You were, more, were you, would you say you being booked more for rave stuff than the club um, stuff? Yeah, it was a mixture, you know, well, like, I think it was that, you know, some places people would be doing parties in a club, like San Francisco had a pretty vibrant club scene. So there's a lot of clubs, but then some cities didn't have a regular club just yet. So it would be more one-off parties by a promoter that would be doing different parties in different spaces. You know, maybe he'd use the same space once or twice a year, but he'd have a couple spaces he'd work with. So there was a little while there was an even balance. Like, I want to say it was when that it kind of started to shut down raves when things went back to the club because, you know, a lot of cities couldn't get permits anymore, you know, to do, like it just became a headache for too many promoters and that, you know, whenever that rave act was like when sort of the country became aware, authorities became aware that bad things happen at raves, you know, that was sort of the end of that era of, um, you know, like life's fully licensed spaces where then everything had to go back to the club in that mid nineties rage, you know, I want to say like 95 ish when a lot of rave things, you know, I kind of, if I remember right, started to die down because authorities got a little bit hip to, you know, it's, raves are a bit crazy and like kids doing drugs and it's kind of madness. So, and then that's when things went back to the clubs and people started doing more club nights with like multiple DJs, you know, in the same club or two rooms in a club as opposed to starting in that, you know, one DJ all night range, you know, like, it, but yeah, things went back to the club in that late nineties era. And especially, yeah, 95 to, you know, I think by 99, you know, a lot of, like it took a gap there. And then there was a gap too, where there wasn't a lot of places for underage kids to go. A lot of cities, you know, like when the rave thing died down, you had to like everything turned 21 and up all of a sudden, which changed the dynamics. Right. Would you? Sure, sure. We're all loving you, Mark Marina. Drink that water, and I want you to. I was going to ask you about this question. What's most of you were predominantly U.S. based, or were you also getting things to go across the pond, the U.K. and Europe? Were you touching that as well? A little bit. Like it wasn't much as you know, like Derek started going to Europe a bit more. Like Derek had a pull. Um, I think I found in that 90s era of like DJing, there was a few of us. Um, I mean, the main one that comes to mind would be like Doc Martin. There was just a couple of DJs though that weren't putting out many records, but were getting a lot of DJ gigs. I mean, of course, there was your you know producer DJs, which that helped you know things, and that helped a lot of people get to Europe. Like, and, and they're like, you know, you're New York, but like. If you put out vinyl, you get a little more international. But after that record with Derek, that Symbols and Instruments thing, like I didn't make a lot of tracks on my own for a while. Like I would just tinker with stuff at home, but it wasn't like a, I didn't use that as a tool to get um, DJ gigs, really, which right. I sort of occurred to me later, you know, I was grateful for that, you know, there was like a, it just seemed like a smaller batch. There, there was a period though where you could get other DJ gigs just based on doing good DJ gigs which in this day and age, you know, it's 
you know, things are even a bit more metal these days. You know, you got to have like social media, you got to have tracks on Beatport, tracks over here, you know, some DJs are putting out tracks every week and still can't get gigs. And, you know, where's the connection? Like there was that period, I think, of, you know, that nineties period that where I didn't, luckily, you know, I didn't have to put out a bunch of records to get a lot of DJ gigs, but that limited me. Like it didn't get me to Europe so much. Cause you know, that was like a, a bit more to cross. Like I think the way I got to Europe though, wasn't through making a bunch of records. It was just sort of having affiliations with house labels in like UK, like just, you know, talking with people in different house labels. I liked like say, you know, like with um, Luke Solomon, you know, classic at the time and like 2020 vision was like Ralph Lawson up North. Oh yeah. I remember Ralph. Yeah. 2020. So getting to know people through record labels like that, you know, was how I got some more international gigs. I mean, and then beyond that though, like the mix CD era was kind of what got me a little more international where I wasn't making tracks. I started CDs, which, you know, for you youngins out there, you know, before you know, like you know, <laughs> mixes are everywhere. There was a period though where mix CDs were, like a kind of a like a it, it took some effort like putting out a record you know it was like a you know, a real deal to get the mix CDs to license all the tracks and but that got you a lot of you know play elsewhere and, if you weren't doing tracks and a huge tour possibly if you worked it yeah. right with the management right yeah they, so eventually you know, I did that fabric CD which opened up in like the fabric CD I would say opened up a bunch more English things or the mix CDs in general like the United DJs was a popular series that when I did the United DJs mix, like it got my name into regions that, you know, like only those things could get to. And those mix CDs, you know, they put a lot of effort into making those mix CDs and distributing them. They were a big deal. Like, I mean, I, you know, I want to say I did, you know, about 10 mix CDs, you know, and there's you know, like, it was just such a benefit, you know, and then the mushroom jazz thing came out, you know, that was when in San Francisco I hooked up with home. And then I started doing a series with them of mix CDs, but it was sort of, you know, like, you know, mixtapes were great, but mixtapes only got so far. Like, you can only do so much with a mixtape, even though that was like big currency, you know, gramophone, like I mentioned, you know, that was where I got a lot of gigs was, you know, like even, you know, meet somebody from another town, give them a mixtape. Here, you know, here's a mixtape. That was you know, how you would deal. But the mixed CDs, I think, were maybe that would have been, like if I would have been making, producing music during those 90s period, um, mix CDs gave me the benefit of not being a producer and getting me my name put around a bit. Cause yeah, there's like, you know, United DJs and the Ohm, like the house of Ohm series became popular and mm-hmm. you know, like, and yeah, there was just a time when those mixed CDs were like a quite of a cool. Oh yeah. Big time. They, they were, they were um, a catalyst of you being able to say, Hey, we're going to do the United DJs of America tour, 50 cities. And yeah. That's the next six months of work. Yeah. You know, like yeah. the Mushroom Jazz ones came, you know, came later. You know, you need to do a whole, like, yeah, half year tour of Mushroom Jazz one tour and hit all these cities, you know, and you put the logo of the mix CD, you know, and all the flyers and blah, blah, blah. It'd be like a whole process. But, but because you were such a driving force in America and South America, of course, North America, Canada. When EDM began and the change of the sound, did that affect your gigs at all? Um, yeah, let me think. I mean, there was, you know, I'm trying to think of how many, like there was that gap between raves and the EDM starting, you know, I'd say EDM was like post to like, you know, what, 2003-ish maybe I'm thinking, four or five. 
around 506 starts to really take off. Really, it was fortunate. I had you know, like people knew my sound by then, so um, like I'm trying to think the only thing that EDM would have that I, I mean, the thing I liked with EDM because I think there was that big gap of where kids couldn't hear electronic music. I mean, I was already over 21, you know, like I turned 21 in 1990, <laughs> so I didn't have that problem, but I could see a problem after raves, you know, when. By the wayside, there was a couple year gap where if you're under 18 or under 21, you couldn't go to a club. Right. And I felt like that was stifling the the club world a bit. You know, you want some young, you want to be playing music for kids so they can get into it. And then once kids, I mean, this is just my whatever humble opinion of looking back on things, but I could remember thinking like there wasn't a place where kids could go hear a DJ and look at them until EDM. Even though by the time EDM came around, you know, I wasn't into that sound, you know, like it wasn't my cup of tea. Sure. But I was appreciative that it was a place where kids could go hear electronic music. Right. And thinking that, you know, right when the EDM scene sort of re-kicked up, you know, and like, you know, took that gap between, you know, the rave and EDM period. And it was like, yeah, it was just good to see kids. Cause I think, you know, there, for me, it was important. Like, you know, if I didn't, go out and see these DJs playing, I wouldn't have gotten into a lot of stuff. You know, like actually being there, you know, and seeing the DJ is the part of the thing. So if there's nowhere to go hear a, you know, any whatever random DJ, if you couldn't go hear him, you know, and then I think in that area, like I used to, you know, we were kids, like, you know, we'd get a fake ID that worked in like 1988, a fake ID, but 2004 or five, like fake IDs didn't work anymore. Unless you had like, you know, some kids had a really good one, but it was just hard for younger crowd to go hear a dj so i was grateful that edm sort of you know then the people would do edm parties they were all all age pretty much you know so i felt that was a good a good thing for all of electronica like i said even though you know whatever you take a whole pie the edm pie you know it's kind of grown but uh, i always thought of it like as a bridge that those people would get into edm stuff and then find other you know things that i was into like you know find the house music find learn the old schoolers stuff through EDM. And that's pretty much it. That, that wraps that up on, you know, the EDM world. And of course we've lived through that and the craziness of that and all the festivals in America and the huge amounts of money of all the Europeans coming in and with all the records on the radio <laughs> and they wonder if dance music ever died. And I said, no, it just took a different head, a different look. EDM replaced it, and a lot of house DJs suffered for it. You, my friend, were lucky to withstand it and be able to weather through it without being scathed. But man, a lot of people gone. I mean, I was fortunate that I, you know, didn't have to change my sound to, you know, I think you had to change your sound to fit into another sort of thing, like in terms of, yeah, I could just see how, you know, you could get pressured by all this stuff is popular like oh i'm gonna play that stuff because that's gonna get me in that door and then you you know you get away from who you are so i was pretty lucky though i could and i remember thinking that with um early going out to clubs like there are certain djs like frankie ron like where there was an excitement that people had before like going to hear certain djs early in my deep like i'm sure you felt it too in new york but there's like a buzz of certain djs like you know that I want to do like I want to get to that level where like the people are going to the club, you know, in a in a 
like wanting to hear the music, you know, like for the DJ great and, set and so. right for the DJ and the music. Yeah, it was an anticipation thing. So, the, so, so there was no breaks at all for you then. There has not been any breaks. No, still COVID. I basically worked every weekend from whatever nineteen. 88, 89 till March 2020 with like never having a weekend off until March 2020. The end of March. I think I played Mexico that like March 18th of 2020. And then like, you know, I was in Mexico and everything started to shut down. They're like, you know, people can't get back to the country or, you know, you better get back here now. Shit's about to hit the fan. <laughs> if you remember that, like that mid-March hysteria when COVID just kicked in. So yeah. And then and then all of a sudden I had all this time off. So tell us what you did during that time. Um, focused on being a dad. Like I said, I, can, I have a kid. He's 11 years old. So, I mean, I was pretty great. I mean, like I said, I was grateful to work. It's a pretty long run. As you, you and me both know, there's a lot of DJs, like you mentioned, that have disappeared by the wayside. People have had records. People come and go. So to be able to do it from 89 to 2020 was like a pretty good achievement. So I was like, cool. Luckily I had a little money saved so I could not like, you know, I could, I didn't have to be like, ah, you know, like, you know, I got to pay a bill this week. What am I going to do? Like that would have changed the element a bit more. You know, if I really needed to like, you know, I, I it was lucky the break, you know, like I want to say I took off March, 2020, like a year off March to April, 2021. So yeah, just being home, got to, I organize a lot of records. You can see all these tabs over here, like I, I did. It's like a record shop. It's like a real, like a yeah. Yeah, I did. It's all behind here too. Like I, that was a project that I wouldn't have gotten done other than COVID. So I basically, you know, like I cop like took images of all the record label logos because before it was just um, imports. I mean, I had a Chicago section, a Detroit section, but then you know, it was domestic house, you know, which U.S. house and then European house, and then the divisions amongst that was minimal. So then I started to really like, so now the European stuff is, I've got all divided by label. Um, I mean, if I turn this around, let's see if it works. Like, you kind of see, you know, I did put the little logos on all the labels and. It's like slip and slide here. Slip and slide record. <laughs> yep. I got them all in there. So, now I know you played a lot of my records. I know you played a lot of my yeah. records over the years. Because <laughs> I would really always hear somebody said, Mark Farina played it. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> because everybody playing your record is the most important part as to why we made records. Not because I made them so they could be used as ashtrays. We wanted everyone to enjoy what we were doing. Yeah. So, so gave, was, you know, I got to do all that, you know, and hang out with the kiddo. Like my son was happy that I was home all the time. Because nice. normally I go, you know, I leave Friday, leave Friday afternoon and I'm back Sunday. That's like the normal schedule. But then I'm home all during the week. So he was, he was happy to have dad around all the time. And yeah, dad? I just stayed home. I got cats, I got more cats, which I couldn't have done if I you know, would have been traveling. I wouldn't have got more cats. Dad, you're not, you're not traveling? Cats huh? Dad, you're not traveling next week? No, son. Yeah, he was upset. He was. So that was, I mean, that's time, you know, I'll you know, never get back. So, you know, he was whatever, 10-ish when the pandemic started. He's 11 now. It's a good time to be hanging with the kiddo all the time. 
So, and I know, and I know what your dad, my dad was like working dad. Like he, he went to work every day. Yeah. He did work hours. He was out of the house at like 5 a.m. before I was ever up. And then he would come home, you know, for dinner and then he'd go to bed by eight. It was like, but me and it's, you know, me and my son all the time, like I pick him up from school and then it's us hanging out, you know, all after school. It was just so different than, I mean, I love my dad and all, but we didn't spend the same time together that I do now with my son. Like kind of, especially I think the pandemic did that to a lot of, you know, made you, you had to be, whether you like it or not, you had to be with your family all the time. Like no more going on trips and going out to stuff. So, so I, I appreciated the, the lockdown in a way, you know, obviously, you know, club, you know, clubbing is fun and all, but you don't want to be out there if it's unhealthy and not safe for people. And I was fortunate to have so much clubbing where I'm like, you know, like, you know, when you're going out every weekend for however, you know, a two deck, 20 something years, a break is, is nice. So you, did you start to miss it again? Um, Lengthen. yeah, there, you know, it comes a certain point where, you know, or just when you know, like the streaming thing, like, you know, playing a stream isn't, isn't the same as that face to face in the moment you're at a club atmosphere. Like you can't really reproduce that. I mean, making a mix for people is nice, you know, and somebody, you know, like, Oh, that, you know, that was a great mix and blah, blah, blah. But you know, you can't like the, you know, the optimum club experience, you know, like, you know, it's like a nice dark club, like no lights. I'm not in the spotlight. Everybody's dark. People aren't all facing the booth. People are dancing with each other, having fun, but you're connecting with people. You play that, you mix that certain song in and there's that one dude on the dance floor that notices, you know, you mix, you're mixing in a different beat or an acapella. You know, and mm-hmm. you make that connection and like, yeah, you know, it's, it's on. And so yeah, you can't reproduce that in the digital world. So yeah, you start to miss, you know, and then there's certain, you know, like all the, you know, I think of all the music that, you know, came out during the pandemic, you know, this would sound great on a club system. You know, it's not, you know, even though I have a decent studio set up, it's not a club system. I'm, it's not like Danny's <laughs> set up in his house. Like, we're, we're, so, you know, there's certain songs like, I want to hear this on a system, you know, which I missed. So projecting forward, what's the plan, brother? Where are we going now? Um, well, let's see. I mean, things are starting to book up for 2022. Like we we chatted before, you know, like there's still that COVID cloud hanging over the Tell entertainment world that, you know, we don't know where it's going to go. You know, we're all hoping for the best that it can go away and we can live our summer and spring like, you know, we'd like to, but I've definitely been noticing um, I mean, I've been gigging, you know, I started back in April and I've been playing pretty consistently since April. I know you just said you just went off, you know, this last weekend. I think I, I played almost every weekend since the, the last weekend of April. Yeah. But you're in, you're in that area, New York. It's like, yeah. and we could do it next minute. No. So it's, you know, you have th- things you have to deal with, but I know where you're coming from. You had a very easy state to work in. Yeah. So things are starting to book ahead for the year and yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I think, you know, like anything else, you know, like being away from clubbing made me, I mean, I, I like to think I appreciated it, you know, didn't take it for granted. I've always tried to, you know, do that, but definitely being away from the club for a year made me appreciate the whole clubbing thing even more. And especially with the ups and downs in the last year, since, you know, things have picked back up, you know, it's, you know, I had some gigs, you know, with the, with the different variants, you know, some cities and towns like gigs, you know, like, Hey, can we push it back to another date? And you know, like you also mentioned, you know, some cities when they got to cut their like occupancy down by fifty percent, it becomes unviable to have guests. Like 
some clubs you play for, like you know, a lot of these clubs aren't making a bunch of money, you know, and if they're going to cut their door cost 50%, they can't afford a whole yeah, yeah. chunk of DJs anymore. Cause it's not just going to make sense, you know, and the, the dollars and cents aren't going to add up at the end of the night to, you know, so there's some clubs, you know, you know, I haven't played in a year. So I'm excited to get back to the places I haven't been. Um, Canada, we mentioned, you know, I've been playing in Canada since forever. You know, like I go to Canada so much. Like I almost feel like, I'm half Canadian sometimes because I used to just be up there almost Hi. once a month in different Canadian places. And I love Canada, but I haven't been to Canada now, and you know it's been like two years, almost two years ago. Oh, they shut it down. They shut the borders down again. It's like yeah, and you can't. You know, I was supposed to play in Vancouver, but they they had that thing. You, know, you can't dance. So how are you gonna? <laughs> it just sort of kills the club vibe, and you can't. I'm gonna bring Marina if you can't dance because Mark Farina wanted to dance. I mean, there was that period in like San Francisco, at least you had the separated tables, you know, by like lines and stuff, but you could dance in your separated area. You can't even do that in some places still to this point, which is to a lot of, you know, Americans, you know, it sounds foreign that you, you know, even though obviously things aren't hundred percent back, but at least you can dance in some places. That's right. That you can't dance. Like I know I was supposed to play in Vancouver, a lot of places in Canada, nobody's been clubbing still yet. In a lot of cities, so yeah, I'm, ho- I'm hoping you know that with you know this Omicron will fade out, we won't have another one, and we can kind of stand on some better ground come spring. I know, so, brother. We we got to hope for the best, baby. Got to hope for the best. I'm hoping you know, for everything yeah. because we don't need an industry. And this industry is getting ravaged little by little, and people are going away, and they're not able to come back anymore. And the longer it goes on, the harder it gets. It really yeah. gets... And the good venue, like, you know, I'm not, I know, you know, a bunch of really good, you know, smaller venues that have just had to shut down, because they... Yeah. You, know, you can't, you can't pay the bills for that long in this thing. And even when some things are starting to open up, they're still on, you know, not everybody's, you know, should I go out? You know, even I'm like, you know, like... How do you feel? You're probably reluctant too, a little bit, right? At times. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm still, you know, it's a balance, you know, like, oh, you know, I want to pay the bills and I want to have a, you know, I want to have a good night out too. Like I want to go out and be carefree too and have fun. And I even want to just go out and club and hear somebody else. You know, I don't even have to play, but if you're, you know, if you're not feeling safe about it, it's not, when it gets not fun, you're like, it's not fun. You're like, you know, if I'm going to go get, to a club and get sick is kind of scary you know and that kind of puts a damper on the like going out to club you know because you you go to you know release yourself and you know, i still like to dance you know i don't dance as much as i used to but i'd like to go out and hear a good dj and not even be anywhere near the booth like sit on the side you know be a punter hang out but it's kind of you know, like there's been a couple there was a couple times you know and some people have come through dallas to play and i've had the night off but i was just kind of afraid to go out you know like, i don't want to go you know and i have my son to think of you know like everybody's going through the same thing you know they have elderly whatever relatives kids you're like you know do i do i want to go out you know and that's playing part in all these cities and all these little venues that are trying to struggle and get people to come out and pay their staff and pay the bills hopefully we can all come out on the end of this you know there's you know, yeah, I know. We got to stay positive, brother. We can't. A lot of clubs are going to have to rebuild, and you know, new. But you know what? It's like a war. After it's over, we will rebuild. You know yeah. that. You will rebuild because people are going to want this exercise. Is taught that no matter how much you could be on social media, you still need interaction 
humanly speaking, between each other. We can't hide in our bunkers forever. And we weren't built for this. No. No. Yeah, I do think, you know, even DJs aside, that break, I think, you know, because when clubs started it coming back in the summer of 2021, like, there was some energy of, like, you know, before Delta came along and, like, before COVID rained up, and there was, like, a good energy of people appreciating nightlife, not just DJs, but you know, people going out. And, like, and the clubs are happy to be open and have people coming out. And I'm sure that will come back. Yeah, it will. But we're going to miss you the best, Brother Mark. You really broke it down for us. And we, we, we know you have another 25 years of clubbing in front of you to give to these people before you As call. You. We're going to, like, we're, we're like the... Pioneers of the old DJ here. We're like breaking new ground. Like, we're, dinosaurs. we're dinosaurs. <laughs> House music, dinosaurs. And we talk about these golden era terms. Well, when we did that, it was amazing. Now it's quite crap. I hate, I hate, I hate being jaded. And I used to say this every time. If they can take one thing away from me is take everything I remember so I don't have the chance to slag the new. I can't appreci- yeah. appreciate sometimes the new stuff because we knew better when <laughs> it counted. And on that note, Mark Marina, I want to bless yeah. you, bro. And with Thank you, you for putting me in on a Tuesday. Being yes, <laughs> you got special red carpet carpa. People, people wrote, you're on a Tuesday? I'm like, yeah, we're on a Tuesday for today. Yes, we are. But I want to say one last thing. Watch Mark Farina. Keep your eye on Mark Farina. He's not done yet. In fact, he's coming even with more stronger stuff, more music, and he's going to play around the United States. He's our, he is our man, our mascot for USA, DJ Mark Farina. Thank you all. No, thank you. Honored to be a part of your, your great little... Uh thing you created here so yeah you're a legend he's part of a true house stories family you're amongst all the greats and you are one of the greats brother you keep doing what you're doing don't stop and you never and here's one last thing don't get old don't sign off for the getting old part stay young forever yeah. in your heart for sure they, they said to us you can't do this for a living <laughs> <laughs> One last thing I want to say is this February 5th, god damn it, I'm coming out to DJ. Thank you, Mark. I know you clap, but thank you. Becky News is back to House Beats Party at Now and Then. Brooklyn, New York, proof of, let's check this out. Ready, everybody? Proof of vaccination. Proof of, or the 24 to 48 hour negative test accepted. Ain't that some craziness? Now and Then. Meserol, East Williamsburg, we're coming to party. Mark Farina, bless you, brother. And everyone in the world, thank you for tuning in to True House Stories, a special Tuesday with our friend out of Texas, the red state, but originally from Chicago, now lives in Texas. Yeehaw, horse and pony and all, cowboy hats and all. He's coming to a club near you. So, everyone, good night. Take care. Avina Zed and good riddance.